if we knew what the future looked like, we'd all be wealthy beyond imagination. So we don't know, you know, but the things we can do is prepare ourselves for it. Welcome to episode 26 of the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm also doing very well. We're surviving. We had yeah. a nice Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had actually just about, although not quite, a 24-hour period where the kids were at Cousin's house. <laughs> and I tell you, our house gets really quiet when everybody is out. Like, <laughs> like resort-quality silence when everybody is out. It's pretty amazing. Is it like you guys take advantage of it, or does it become kind of eerie? Like, you're like, okay, I don't know what to do with the silence now. No, Mm-mm. no, you're not just enjoying me. it. Yeah, I just I love it. Soaking it up. It. I'm I'm 100% in favor of uh, silence. <laughs> I I mean I try to be semi productive when it is actually silent, like actually sit down and read the book that I'm always seem to be working on at a very slow pace, and you know do those sorts of endeavors. But uh, that doesn't always happen. I'll say sometimes when the kids are out of the house, then it's like, oh well, let's go to lunch and let's go to dinner and let's go to happy hour and let's you know. You start filling up the day and you're just out doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So we tried not to do too much of that. Plus, it was a holiday weekend. So it's, it, we knew it would be a bit busy if we tried to go out. So we limited our going out to bare minimums. <laughs> nice, nice. We uh, we did absolutely nothing over the three-day weekend. Nice. And that was just phenomenal. Like just, I can't, we, we did, we went grocery shopping. That is the extent of our accomplishments. We have food for the week to keep us alive, but otherwise it was just great. Actually, no. Okay. I lied. We put up our fall decorations. Cause I'm one of those people that comes come labor day. I need to have pumpkins everywhere. Uh-huh. So I have all my fall decorations up. But other than that, it was just very quiet and relaxing. Yeah. Did, uh, did Steven actually have to help you put up the fall decorations? He, his only involvement is to get them down from the attic for me because the attic scares me. I cannot do that up there. <laughs> so it was very much a uh, honey, please take them down. So I don't buy more pillows, uh, from home goods. Cause I know we have pillows up there somewhere. Uh-huh. That's interesting. That's, that's always my limited involvement in any decorating around the house. And I, I'm trying not to be offended by it, but I'm starting to see a pattern. does something need brute force brent you do that (laughs) does something need like a creative eye and like uh you know fine motor skills not not for me you know i'm exempt (laughs) yeah that's that's pretty much where 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 steven's at If, if i don't need a power tool involved um He's kind of left out of that conversation. Nice. But, well, I guess, but yeah, we, we know our roles. We know the roles very well. As long as he's not complaining, I guess you're you're okay. Exactly. <laughs> well, today we are joined again, a repeat visitor. Frankly, uh, the only repeat visitor we've had so far other than you and I, Rachel. <laughs> uh, Doug Nelson has joined us again uh, by way of reintroduction, I suppose. Uh, Doug was on an episode in June, so you can go back and listen to that episode. I can't remember what episode number it is, but we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Doug is a a financial advisor at TCI Wealth Advisors. He's trained as a CPA, but then he's also got a certification to be a personal financial advisor through the the, uh, AICPA. And Doug uh, thinks and acts very similarly to the way that we think and act, and we always enjoy talking to Doug. So Doug, thanks for coming back. My pleasure, Brent and Rachel. And um, just so you know, that whole concept you were talking about of when the kids were gone, I'm a little older than the two of you, but when our kids were little and they would leave, my wife is an artist, so she would treasure that time. So typically I got kind of this, um, Doug, would you kind of just go away and leave me alone? (laughs) That time all by yourself, similar to you and your book, Brent. Yeah. Usually it's while I'm reading the book, then that's when the the request for the brute force comes. 
You know, it's like I'm I'm sitting down, I'm getting in the book, and it's like, hey, you know all those boxes, they're very high. It's sort of treacherous. I want you to get those down. But I I I jump right in. I, I'm I must be like Steven Rachel. I know my role and I know I know the limited value that I bring to the situation, so I'm willing to put it in. <laughs> well, I thought that today we would uh, somewhat circle back to the conversation we had, uh, Doug, because you, if you'll recall, I'm sure you do, that we talked about uh, last time kind of financial advising under the elements of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the shutdown and everything that was sort of going on at that point. And now here we are uh, several months removed from that. And, uh, you know, maybe we should take stock of, all right, where, we, where are we now? What's different now from say a few months ago? Uh, what sorts of things should we be looking forward to between now and the end of the year? And then kind of projecting maybe even beyond that, how people should be thinking if it's different or not about financial advice and uh, investing. And, you know, we're probably getting some tax stuff too. So if that makes sense, I think that's the direction we'll head. That makes sense. And I believe back in June, we were talking more about COVID and it was pretty well defined at that time as an event-driven recession. We all recognized it is a recession. It was started back in March. And that event-driven recession, it seems like now in retrospect, it led us to believe that we would come out of it and it would be very, very short in term in nature. And I think that's a lot of what equity prices reflected is that Everyone thought, okay, we'll, we'll get past this. It'll go away. Then all of a sudden things will go back to normal. And what we're finding now is it's a little different than what we had anticipated. That event hasn't necessarily just gone away. It's kind of lingered for us. And number two, it's created a different business environment where profitability for certain companies has been extremely high. They've done extremely well that we wouldn't have anticipated if we would just come out of this event-driven recession and gone back to what we would call normal. So I think the realization that what we called normal back in January or late last year may not be coming back. It may be something different. And we'll need to identify those companies that are going to thrive and survive and those that may not, if we're going to try and <clears throat> pick those stocks, which may or may be an effective strategy for some people. So that's uh, kind of my recap, Brent, on where we were and where we're headed. When we, when we look back at these, we can see that in each case, behavior is what really makes the biggest difference in people's overall wealth strategies over lengthy time periods. And so that behavior may very well be changing now because of the realization this is not a, oh, just a quick bump and we're over it. So in what way, I guess, are you having that conversation with your clients of, of uh, what sounds to me like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but what sounds to me like a conversation of uh, not being focused on the short term, even though there's lots of stuff happening on the short term here and being focused a little bit long term. Correct. It's exactly like uh, um, you're describing. There's a, an old quote that I remember seeing somewhere that says, think of markets forces as a raging river. Any experienced rafting guide will tell you not to fight the rapids. You're better off charting your course, adapting incrementally and not oversteering. So for markets, what that means is don't try and guess what's going to happen tomorrow. We're going to go through tumultuous times. Those things just occur. Get used to it, structure your affairs such that you can weather those and not just financially weather them, but also emotionally. And that's really what we're more and more with, especially during this COVID-19 um, event. Um, that, that emotion can't be ignored. It drains over or spills over into everything in our lives. Our relationships, like we're on a video right now. I haven't seen either of you in person in quite some time. It's harder to maintain a relationship this way, but we recognize that it's necessary now. So how do we do it as effectively as we can and protect those that we care about? And at the same time, 
going through those emotions, we're going through a, a, a very interesting political time that I don't I don't know that I've seen anything indicating that this level of emotion has existed since probably the 20s and 30s when there were fistfights on the Senate floor that broke out. So it's an interesting time. Um, and that will give rise to people reacting emotionally, not just from an investment standpoint, but from a tax standpoint and simply from a societal standpoint. Many of my discussions with clients and prospective uh, clients, other, other professionals like yourselves, not only centers around the impact that this will have on our financial lives, but the impact that it will have on society and what that means to us societally. So the thing that I've learned this time and, and being in the, this industry for well over years now is that you, you can't ignore that emotional part. You better embrace it right up front. Say, yeah, I've seen many downturns. All of them start differently. All of them in the same way with some form of recovery. That doesn't mean that I'm fearless. That means that, yeah, I get frightened and concerned by this stuff too, just like this. Yes, so it's really interesting. Uh, we were just chatting uh, before we jumped on here about how we have we've reached out to our higher net worth clients. Um, and the idea was to, first of all, dig in, dig into the polling and try to, you know, spend some time. And I spent some time over a weekend really digging into the polling and what was out there and what what the polls were saying about various elections, not just the presidential election, but then also about key Senate elections, which, which would also need to fall into place, for example, for the Democrats to implement their full tax plan or tax proposals, um, whatever that would look like when they implement it, because it's always a little mm -hmm. bit of a mystery before it actually happens. But and so I was just looking at the polls and just pulling out the number from the most recent polls. Every poll that I looked at on the presidential side showed that Biden was well ahead in all the key states. And every poll that I could find that related to the key Senate uh, races, uh, I think those are in, in North Carolina, Arizona, uh, maybe Virginia and Maine, uh, sorry, uh, Colorado and Maine, uh, those key Senate races, the Democrats are also leading in those races. And so we, I just sent out a letter to all my clients, now high net worth clients, and just said, hey, look, these are the numbers, just solely based on these numbers. You know, I, I can't really read into them. I don't know anything about the way they did their polling. But just solely based on these numbers, it looks like there's a high likelihood of Biden winning and the Democrats taking control of the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the case, here are some things you need to know about. These are things they're planning to do to change the laws. And these are things you should possibly be doing this year and not waiting till next year. And there was this I I tried not to be too heavy on it, but there is a little bit of a subtle uh, hint that, and by the way, you need to start getting in line with us now, because if we're too busy at the end of the year, like this is just not going to get done. You know, like we need to start doing it now. We need to start getting ready for it right now. And we, I've gotten back, so, you know, I love all my clients. Uh, they all have very vastly differing uh, political views. I've gotten back some very emotional responses to that letter, which I thought was fairly objective. Uh, and I was trying to be unemotional and obje unobjective, but I've gotten back really emotional responses from from some of my clients whom I love. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's just to be expected. Maybe that's just the time that we're living in right now. There was one there's one uh, polling group out of Atlanta that was polling Trump winning uh, in one of the key races, not. And so I was looking at the key states, the assumption being if Biden wins all of the, the states that Clinton won, mm -hmm. then which of the battleground states does he need to take and flip potentially in order to win the Electoral College? And so the key mm -hmm. ones are like Arizona, North Carolina, uh, maybe uh, maybe Colorado. Now I'm now I'm blanking on on the full list. Uh, it's been a little bit too too long since I looked at those polls and did too much work for other clients. But the so I was just looking at those key key races because those are the ones that really matter. Mm -hmm. Obviously, other races could go different ways. But mm -hmm. the polling in all of those states was indicating that Biden had a fairly commanding lead by like the, the lowest was a two point lead. Most of these had a margin for error of three or four. But that was like the lowest range was two in any of the polling 
where Biden was ahead, most of them were four, five, six, eight, nine, ten points ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the responses back I got were, well, last time the polls were wrong. And, you know, nobody can dispute that fact other than to say uh, between 2016 and now, I think the polling agencies have been studying why they got it wrong in 2016 and tried to make adjustments. But I, think, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about their methods. I don't know what they do. I don't, I'm yeah. not a statistician. I think they, I, I think they, they got their nose bloodied over that whole election. So I think they're being very careful this time, I would suspect. And it's interesting that you would you know, that you would start talking a little bit about that because seeing is no matter how you cut it, there's fear involved. And those are usually the two emotions that drive mistakes in an overall wealth plan. It's either fear or greed. This time we're seeing a lot of fear. And I remember in the dot-com boom, uh, it was greed. And I Rachel earlier about some clients, we'll just call them Bill and Sue. And they were just convinced that, it, remember the new economy, in the late 90s that everything was going to be different and we, we all had to load up on tech stocks in our portfolios and and they wanted to to put over a third of their portfolio into tech stocks and i discouraged them and discouraged them and discouraged them but it's their money and so i finally said okay i'll help you do that but if you're going to put that much into tech stocks then i'm going to need to resign because that's not a well diversified portfolio and I'm willing to to resign over that. I like working with both of you. I just think it's that material of a mistake. And they said, oh, well, well, hold on then just a minute. What do you think is reasonable? And I said, well, I'm okay if you want to reasonably risk 10% of your portfolio. And they said, okay, let's do that. After the, the dot-com crash, they came back and were just all over themselves telling me how wonderful smart I was and how I'd saved them from, you know, a mistake they were going to make. And, make. and I explained, no, it, it was simply not reacting to an emotion that had to do with what you thought was going to happen. And uh, it was accompanied by the fear that you might be left behind all of your friends and neighbors. And Bill and Sue, you know, they're still con- they were still convinced that I was just really, really smart, but really it wasn't. It was simply about structure. Just like that quote that I said, chart a path, stick with that path, make minor adjustments along the way when things get a little out of whack or a little out of balance. But don't, don't try row, rowing upstream in the middle of a rapid. In a big raft, it just ain't going to happen. You're going downstream. That's just how it is. So, uh, Doug, a uh, question for you. So, mm-hmm. you know, on that note, how do you balance when a client comes to you or a prospective client and they, you know, say, you know, right now, obviously, like you were saying at the very beginning, you know, you've got some industries from COVID that have done amazing, right? And then there's others, for example, cruise lines, you know, airlines mm-hmm. um, that have not done so well, obviously. And so, you know, when a client comes to you and they think, all right, I can take advantage of this scenario, right? We think, all right, I can see cruise lines going back up, airlines probably going to go back up. But then how do you balance that kind of prediction then with the emotional side of it? Like you want to keep your your, well-balanced portfolio, but you want to also take advantage of the situation. How do you kind of balance those two, um, those underlying feelings? Well, the first thing that I do is I explain that no one in history has a consistent track record of being able to time industries or markets or sectors. So that's probably not a good idea. However, again, after this many years in the industry, you find that emotions are real, okay? People need to find ways to satisfy those. We're emotional beings. So why not take a small piece of your portfolio and play with it? If you believe that cruise lines are going to come back and come back in a roaring way and they're they're depressed right now, so now would theoretically be a good time to buy, then do it. But don't risk your financial well-being on cruise lines. We know that some sectors are going to do better than others. I mean, look what tech did um, in the recovery, and then look what it's done in the last few days. It's gotten a severe thrashing. It's still ahead of the S&P 500, both the returns of the S&P 500 in the recovery, but it's been beat up significantly over the last few days. Is that going to frighten people now to get out of tech saying, oh, it was a bubble because I was you know, around in 2000, so I have to get out. We don't know. And again, Rachel, I think we talked a little bit about this last session is that in order for 
you to make extraordinary profits by betting on a sector or an industry like cruise lines, then what you have to believe is that your knowledge and or your information is better than all people in the world combined trading cruise line stocks. I can assure you the probability of that is very, very close to zero. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it and go have some fun, but the probability that you're going to outperform is, is really pretty low. Now, just think about this for a second. What if you're right? What if everyone in the world is wrong and you are right? Rachel knows that right now cruise ship cruise line stocks are at an all-time low and they're going to come back because they're undervalued. That's something you hear in the industry all the time, undervalued or overvalued. What, what do those things mean? They mean that somebody's guessing what they're going to do tomorrow. It doesn't mean that they're undervalued today. I mean, right now, cruise line stocks, they're not undervalued. They're right where they should be because everyone in the world is buying and selling them and they're probably priced fairly accurately. So, but just think, what if Rachel's crystal ball really knows that cruise line stocks are being traded at a at really below their true value, their real value that only Rachel knows because otherwise the stocks would go up if everyone else knew that. But she knows that they're too low and they should be higher. So you go buy a bunch of these stocks. Now what do you have to do? You gotta wait it out and fingers, have, fingers crossed. Now, Rachel, you have to go out there and convince the rest of the world that they're wrong and you're right. Otherwise the stock doesn't move. They're still saying that it belongs right where it is. So now your next job is to go out and convince the world that they're all wrong and you're right. Piece yep. of cake, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, I can do that. I can do that with my eyes closed. Come on. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of that. Some of the things we're looking at, uh, looking back at now is we say, wow, Amazon did great. Well, duh, people didn't want to go to the store. So they started ordering all their food and everything on Amazon. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Well, if there were some people that happened to think about that early, then maybe they made some profits. We'd have to go back and look and see. They would have to show us that. And they may have. Some other people may have said, well, you know, airlines are, are going to jack prices way up, so they're going to do better. And that would have been a really bad bet. We, we don't know. So that's why the only, the only real solution is to buy a plethora of securities through the entire world and hold on to them through these things. Rebalance your portfolio. It's interesting because some of the things looking back now, and I, I'm not sure if we talked a little bit about this or not, but a structured approach to investing actually had people rebalancing their portfolios, selling their bond positions and buying stocks in the, that third week of March. And that, that should be happening automatically in a lot of cases. Um, so that was a, a really great opportunity. And I had clients on both sides. I had clients calling me up saying, Doug, we got to get out. You know, this this is just, it, it's never been like this before. And then I would remind them of what we've been through before. And they'd say, well, yeah, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, I don't know, but I'm scared. And I think we should stay structured. We don't want to try and row upstream if we're in a raft going over down the rapids. So then I had other clients call me up and say, whoa, Doug, this is awesome. Stocks are on sale. I'm sending you more money. Invest it all in equities because I know they're going to go back up. Some of them were right. And now we're seeing a correction. Who knows where it'll end up? Which, which kind of brings us to where, where you were headed, Brent. And that is the, the tax issues and what, what can we do between now and the end of the year? And I think a lot of those in that raft analogy, it's not about changing your whole financial strategy. It's about what can I be doing now that may provide incremental growth for me down the road? I started doing um, CPA tax work full-time in, oh, you guys are going to know how old I am now, 1980. And in that year, the marginal tax rate, I was talking to Rachel about this earlier, Brenda, and I'm still not sure she believes me. The marginal, <laughs> the highest federal marginal income tax rate was 70%. Now, there was a, a maximum tax service income at 50%, which meant that the highest marginal rate for salaries and wages was 50%. But if you had investments that took you over thresholds above that, then they were going to get whacked at 70%. So when you think about that and you think about all of the debt that we've incur incurred to fund this recovery, we're going to have to pay that back some way and probably through higher tax rates. So when you look at historical tax rates, not only 
when I started were rates much higher, but the average rate since the mid 20s until now has averaged about 60%. So historically, we're in fairly low tax rates right now. So if you really believe that we're going to see higher tax rates in the future, and Brent, I believe you'll agree with this, a lot of tax legislation has taken this, this new idea that we're gonna make it retroactive to the beginning of the year. And that's common for ordinary income tax rates. Um, capital gains rates may or may not see that, but for ordinary, that's fairly common. So we start thinking, you know, should I be making a Roth conversion of my IRA and getting taxed at a lower rate this year than I could very well be hit with later down the road? So th those are worth looking at. Those are the incremental tweaks that we're talking about when you're charting your course and your raft going down down the rapids. Yeah, and we're in a we're in a really weird moment uh, on the on the high net worth side as well because interest rates are extremely low, extremely low, and valuations are are what they are. In as you know, we were talking about in some industries that historically have done well, valuations are down, and some of the cause of that valuation is just because of the way that people have to live right now because of uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, some of those valuations are down because certain commodities sectors are down like oil and gas. So oil and gas property is down, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and on the on the high net worth side of things where you're trying to plan for a state tax. So people who have over in my mind who have over 10 million because the estate tax exemption is set to fall back down to 10 million 2026. But like right now in this moment, 22 plus million for those sorts of people using uh, their estate tax exemption, taking advantage of making gifts of, of depreciated value assets that have the capacity to increase in value if the market comes back to where it used to be in those sectors, and then utilizing the low interest rates, it's like a magical time, really, to mm -hmm. shift wealth to future generations. It's sort of a it, it's sort of a, a perverse reality of what happens when you have a downturn. This happened in, in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. We still had so, somewhat similar circumstances where the market was way down and interest rates went way down. And even though the economy was tough and people were struggling, it actually made it so that high net worth people were in a better position to do long-term wealth transfer planning than they were before the downturn, same thing has happened now, where you're in a better position now to do long-term wealth transfer planning than we were in February. And mm. that's that's just the reality. And so we've been talking to mm. our clients about that. And and frankly, if if uh, you know if the Republicans retain control of the federal government, we'll adjust our planning to that. And they'll probably have changes to the tax rules. We'll adjust our planning to those changes like we've been doing since uh, 2016. And if the Democrats be, you know, take control of the federal government, we'll just adjust ourselves to their set of rules. And that's mm -hmm. that's all we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we have personal political convictions, but on a on a business level, it's just you just take the the hand that you're dealt and then you adjust accordingly. That's it. Yeah, I, um, I have a, a tax attorney friend similar to you, Brent, up in Nevada. That he, he's actually encouraging clients to be drafting documents now that may or may not get executed. Because in that, that window between the results of the election and the end of the year, that's we're all going to be swamped doing planning and working through this. And, and so getting documents ready to go in case they need to be signed if they don't need to be signed, well, you spend some money to get the, the documents done, but the dollars could be huge, just very huge. I mean, just think if somebody had some old, old um, um, royalty rights for oil wells right now, what a great time to be transitioning those to the next generation, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I have some of those documents uh, on my you know, virtual desk right now where I've had the conversation with the client and the client says, well, we're not ready to do this transaction. I just said, we're doing the documents because if yeah. we don't do it right now and you call me on December 15th, I don't know that we'll get to it. So yeah. we're just going to have it ready. And when you're ready, we'll be ready. The other thing I've been thinking a little bit about is the whole idea of capital gain treatment, because if we do see a, a Biden White House and a, a, a Democrat Senate, then I, I think capital gains rates may very well be attacked. Uh, that's just kind of an easy one. It affects the higher net worth individual to a much greater extent than, than um, the not 
high net worth, high income uh, individual. So I've really been toying with the idea, do we want to actually realize some capital gains if we see you know, a, a Democrat uh, White House? Do we want to realize some of those gains this year, possibly when we can take advantage of very, very low tax rates, 20%, maybe 15 in certain cases, and then buying right back into the same assets if you want to, because you're realizing a gain, so the lot, the um, um, wash sale rules won't apply. You can buy right back into the same assets, then you'll have a higher basis. So if you do sell them, or as you sell them in later years, your gain will be much smaller. So maybe paying tax now as opposed to a higher rate later, even with capital gains. Now, that's going to be a little more emotionally difficult for people to, to swallow, but it, it still may very well be a winning strategy. We'll just have to think it through and talk with people, see what they think. The flip side of that is if you are thinking about making some transitions to the next generation, and let's say even those, those next generation uh, may prefer cash, well, some of them may be young and they might actually get these those gains, if you gifted them appreciated securities, they might be able to get those gains at zero or 15% on the federal level, and thereby really decreasing the overall tax that the family has to pay, especially if we see capital gains rates shoot back up to 28, plus the net investment income tax, which, you know, how many times do you see a tax that, that people are paying actually go away? So I, I don't know that that's going away, and that's at 3.8 that high net uh, net income individuals are going to pay. Yeah, and a 3.8 that kicks in even before you hit maximum uh, ordinary income tax rates, and even before you would hit the maximum uh, proposed capital gains rates that Biden has kind of put out there. You know, he said if you have income over a million dollars, then you get taxed at ordinary income tax rates. On your capital gains, well, the net investment income tax kicks in at two hundred fifty thousand dollars of a you know bonafide yeah. adjusted gross income. So it's a much lower threshold. Yeah, when you start combining um, all those rates, it gets really high really fast. I like the idea of of triggering gains this year if you want to kind of make a bet. The mm -hmm. the nice thing about if you have liquid assets is you could you actually can wait until after the election to trigger the gains unless you feel like they're going to be off the table anyways, but you know because you yeah. can sell the, you can kind of sell those on a whim. I also kind of like uh, I like the idea of making gifts to kids, let the kids recognize the gains because their their tax rates are likely to be lower and one thing that I sometimes try and talk people into doing and very few people uh, think I'm serious about it is that if you have to rec if you have to recognize some tax, you have to have create a tax liability that you should actually borrow the money to pay the tax so that you can keep cash invested uh, so you can hang on to the opportunity cost and just circulate money inside the family. So if you have a family trust that's sitting on cash, borrow the money from the family trust, use that to pay the tax keep investing mm -hmm. your proceeds and pay back the family trust on the gains that you're earning off of the proceeds that are reinvested. Mm -hmm. Now you now you're not losing your opportunity costs. So all those little sorts of games I, I think are good. Yeah, and you think about that I, as you were talking about that, Brent, I'm thinking, oh yeah, and with the uh, um, applicable federal rates being so low, kids can borrow money from mom and dad really inexpensively. Exactly. Inexpensively. Yeah. Less than 1%. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that Rachel and I talked a little bit about <clears throat> was what does this look like going forward from an overall wealth strategy uh, perspective? And I think it's, it's going to be uh, probably a, you know, a rocky road for us until we get past all of these questions, all of these uncertainties, because really markets and people, they just simply don't like uncertainty. And so until this uncertainty goes away, and it doesn't matter who wins the White House, there's still a lot of uncertainty that comes with it. Um, where are all those Republican senators? Let's say that the that the as uh, the Republicans continue to maintain the White House and the Senate, what happened to all those Republican senators that are budget hawks saying, hey, look, we have to pay this money back someday. Are we going to see them again? So it's not inconceivable to see increased tax rates, even if we maintain uh, a Republican Senate. So that being the case, we can see some, some more 
greater times of uh, uncertainty. And what's going to happen? What if we find out it's actually true? I don't know that it is, but it may very well be that China is doing what it can to um, promote Biden as the U.S. president because they believe Donald Trump to be unpredictable. If that's the case, what's, what if President Trump wins again and is a little vindictive towards China? What's going to happen then? Are we going to see even greater volatility because he didn't like that they were promoting Biden? Uh, those are all kinds of uncertainties. Again, beginning with the emotion, and they translate into typically some type of activity that could give rise to short-term fluctuations. But this is the part that I really want to emphasize. Just because we're seeing volatile times doesn't mean that we're seeing bad times. It just means that they're harder to emotionally go through. That's what it means. It'd be great if we could just sit back and say, oh yeah, let's, let's just earn the average of equity markets and bond markets. Historical bond rates are like 5%. So let's get bonds every year, we get 5% from them. And stocks, well, historically, they're right at 10%. And we'll get 10% on our stocks every year. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The problem is that's not how it happens. We get big returns, losses. So all we can, all we know for sure is that with uncertainty comes volatility. And with volatility, we're going to experience some fear. That doesn't mean the world is coming to an end. That just means that we're going through rough times. Yeah. I, and it's, it's that element, that longevity element that I, is really hard, I perceive at least for a lot of my clients to uh, really hone in on. And it's what I'm super focused on. The, you know, I'm not thinking about five years from now, unless I have a client who's like really ill, then I'm thinking about what are we going to do in the next five years? There's some short term stuff in there. We're thinking about 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what I'm focused on. And so that's different. You know, that's not an everyday occurrence. And, and I imagine it's similar for you of, of trying to help people to focus on these very long-term uh, goals, these very long-term horizons. Yes, there are important things that have to happen in the interim. And on the short-term basis, like you were talking about, uh, you know, readjusting or rebalancing portfolios, those sorts of mm -hmm. things need to happen in the short term. But it's all part of a plan that is a that's got a very, very long-term view on it. Mm -hmm. And it, when you start looking at things in the long term, a lot of the short term stuff doesn't matter too much. And it looks a lot more opportunistic than scary. Yeah. And that's that's really the truth. Um, when you think about investing in equities, if you've got some equity investments, they've got to have a time horizon of at least five years, preferably 10, that you're not going to need that money. And so then when, when we actually take a look at some data, because I like data, the average return of the S&P 500 in elect presidential election years since 1926 has been 9.5%, okay? That's just about the average of the stock market over lengthy time periods. So the average during a presidential election year has been a positive 9.5% per year. In 1932, it was minus 8.2. In 1940, it was minus 9.98. In 2000, it was minus 9.91. In 2008, it was minus 37%. Now, what did all those things mean? You know, we start thinking about those and you say, well, okay, 19, um, let's, let's pick something recent, uh, 2000. That would have been George W. Bush, okay? In the year 2000, things were down 9.1%. During his entire presidency, markets were down 4.4%. He got hit on the front end and the back end. So we take a look at um, the Obama presidency. 2008, the market was down 37%. During his entire presidency, he averaged 15.4% per year, the S&P 500. So even what happens in the presidential year is not indicative of the future. It's just simply that flashpoint in time. It's one of those, possibly in this case, it's one of those rapids that we have to go down. Now that, hopefully that means that there's some smoother water ahead. 
where we can all sit back and say, okay, now let's sit back. And now that I've been down that rapid, let's review my portfolio allocation. Is that too much for me to emotionally handle? And if it is, now that things are calm, let's see if we can't find a way to very tax efficiently get it to a point that I feel better so that I don't panic and don't lose sleep over it. Because remember, Brent, if I'm helping you with your portfolio and we take on too much risk and you die five years early because you're stressed out all the time about your portfolio, that's a pretty stupid strategic plan. It is. It is. Uh, it's an accelerated business succession plan for Rachel, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so now, so now, uh, anytime Rachel asks me a hard question at work, I have to, I have to wonder whether she's really just trying to stress me out. <laughs> I gotta keep you around for a few years. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep you going. We'll keep you going. <laughs> well, so Doug, then have you noticed then right now a, a lot of your clients have they come to you and say, hey, like during this time I've realized I don't want this emotional stress that, you know, I, I realized that maybe I, I want a different reallocation of my portfolio or has a lot of um, your clients more just been like, all right, you know what, like you said, we've seen this before and we're just going to ride it out and keep going. Um, you know, I've been surprised the vast majority have been, uh, I've been calling them proactively and I get this response. Well, okay. But yeah, if I was worried, I'd call you. We've been through this before. I'm emotional about it, yes, I feel that, but I know what you're gonna tell me. You're gonna say, stay the course. And so I say, yeah, but let's not, let's not ignore that if this is taking a big toll on you emotionally, when things calm down, maybe we should be reevaluating your overall mix as to looking to possibly towards something that would be a little more stable in these time periods. So that's, that's what I'm seeing a lot of. Um, just remembering, most of them know that your behavior is what will control your results. You can choose all the great investments you want, but just like the, the couple that wanted to go heavy into tech stocks, that was a behavioral issue. That was not an investment issue. That was a behavioral issue of wanting those 20 and 30% returns, the greed, and also the fear that they would be left behind. Both of those emotions. So find ways find ways to address them and then stick with the plan, stick with the, the, the course you have charted. The other thing that I've been noticing, it's really kind of interesting. And, and this is more along the strategic asset allocation thinking, which you say, what can we be doing between now and the end of the year or what should we be looking at next year? I think this is something that's long-term that we, we should all be looking at. I don't know what it means, I can't tell you, but think about the world capitalization. Where are all? Where is all of this wealth in these companies that are traded on exchanges? Well, some are in the United States, some are in developed markets uh, in foreign countries, and some are in emerging markets. Well, the interesting thing that we've seen over the last couple of decades is we've seen a steady increase in the percentage of total world capitalization that resides in the United States. That means US corporations are making up a bigger piece of the total world corporate wealth than they had in the past. I remember it wasn't that long ago that it was at about 55%, it's, oh, excuse me, 45%. It's now up over 50. I believe at the end of the quarter, let me take a look and I'll tell you, because I do like data, 57%. Now, the interesting thing you'd say, oh, well, that is interesting that the U.S. corporate um, world is becoming stronger and stronger, more powerful, larger capitalization. Well, then that begs the question, where's it coming from? Because there's only 100 percent. So then we start looking at emerging markets. And over the last couple of decades, emerging markets countries only made up five or six percent of the total world capitalization. Now they are at 12 percent. So they're growing as well. What that means is the rest of the world has been shrinking, the developed countries. So that's really kind of interesting. If you had a home bias, which is fairly common in your investing, which means that when the US made up 50% of the world capitalization, maybe of your equity investments, you had 65 or 70% in the US. Okay, that would be called a, uh, a bias towards your home country because you're, you're more comfortable investing in your home country. 
Well, if you had a 60% investment in U.S. equities, thinking that you had a home country bias, now we're at 57%. You don't have very much of a home country bias anymore. So you might be rethinking some of those things. Those are the small tweaks that we're talking about. Now, emerging markets, just so you know, we get a uh, have an idea as to what we're talking about. Emerging markets countries are Argentina, Thailand, South Africa, Indonesia, Brazil, Taiwan, Czech Republic, Poland, Turkey, India, Korea, Philippines, Russia, Chile, um, UAE, United Arab Emirates, Greece, Malaysia, China, Pakistan, Hungary, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Egypt, Peru, Colombia, and Qatar. Now, think of all those countries. Who would have thought 20 years ago that they would make up 12% of the world capitalization in their own markets with their own corporate entities? Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah, so, yes, we are, Yeah, we are seeing the world change a little bit. And so those are the type of things. Now, do I think that you go out and, and redo your portfolio right now? No. But it's something we ought to be looking at strategically for people. You're not you're not buying and selling currencies on the currency markets. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know what? That's another one that's really interesting to me because people get all excited about currency. Uh, currency fluctuations give rise to sometimes very good returns on foreign equities, and then they hamper them at the same time when uh, when the dollar strengthens. So we've seen it going both ways. But the interesting thing about currency fluctuations. What's the expected return on currency fluctuations? No idea, right? No, no idea. When you really stop and think about it, the expected return on currencies is zero because the fluctuations go up and go down and they tend to balance out. So if you invest in currencies, that's a timing issue. You have to know when the dollar's gonna get stronger and when it's gonna get weaker. And again, if you know that, you are going to be wealthy beyond imagine, even going to be writing books because uh, the wealth is just unbelievable. So that's that's an interesting um, idea about, about trading in currencies. The other one is um, commodities. A lot of people a lot of people think that commodities belong in a portfolio. I haven't seen any compelling data yet to show that they should. Some individuals would hold well there's data showing that over the last you know 30 years they've reduced volatility of a portfolio, made it less risky. And that may be true, but if you look from the very beginning of the time period that we have data on commodities, they reduce volatility by about three-tenths of 1% per year, meaning standard deviation, how much your portfolio bounces around. So they do reduce it a little bit. They also reduce returns by almost that exact same amount. So it's kind of a, a trade-off. And then you think through that and you think, well, what do commodities really represent? What's their expected return over lengthy time periods? And again, it's inflation. So you're barely keeping up with inflation. They're the building blocks for everything that we build and buy and sell. So their expected return over lengthy time periods should match inflation. Again, so the only way to make money in commodities would be to be able to know when to, to sell them. And there's a lot of people out there right now saying, well, hey, shouldn't I be buying gold right now? Uh, no, I'm not really sure you should be buying gold. Do you think it's similar uh, similar with cryptocurrencies? Do you think cryptocurrencies are basically just another commodity? I think right now they appear to be. Um, but what I would say is that they also kind of remind me of, of car manufacturing because there are going to be some winners and some losers in that. Back in the turn of the century, what, there were over 100 or 120 different car manufacturers in the United States? And then within 40, 40 years, there's three or four left. So there, there could be some big winners there. And I also think it's just a matter of time before it's fully embraced as uh, how we transact. That's probably just a matter of time. There's a lot of old people like me that say, oh, no, that could never happen. Well, yes, it, it likely will. So if you could identify those ones that are really going to be the winners, it might be it might be a winning strategy. But again, now you're going to have to guess which ones are going to be the winners. And it may very well be the one that has the safest uh, transaction platform, which is the least popular on the markets because it's difficult to deal in, but that's the only one that will get governmental approval. I mean, who knows? We, we just don't know those things yet. Yeah, or, so it again, could be, or it could be service providers that surround cryptocurrency 
Uh, I have a hard time believing that cryptocurrency will always exist without quote unquote gatekeepers, which seems at least from what I read to be the the real uh, exciting part about cryptocurrencies is you you cut out middle people, you cut out banks, etc. Mm -hmm. But at some level, I think to have massive uh, amounts of the economy flipped into cryptocurrency, there are going to be, there's going to be somebody in the middle. You know, there's mm -hmm. going to be somebody who transacts it or who helps you through a platform to gain access to entry points into it. And there's going to be those sorts of businesses that arise. I'm just curious about those kinds of businesses. What are they going to look like? And are, is that where the investment is, not in the actual uh, actual crypto, cryptocurrency itself? Oh, that's, that's we'll a good see. point. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be, yeah, there's just so much, uh, even, you know, even for an old guy, uh, a lot of people get frustrated because I happen to think that right now is an exciting time to be alive. We're going through some big changes and yes, going through these changes, change can be painful. It's also interesting though, to see where we're going to end up. I'm kind of excited about, well, where, what's this lead? You know, there's, there's some really interesting potential outcomes from this. Maybe a society that uh, becomes more caring because right now that seems to be in short supply. Yeah, hopefully so. I, I think we could do with some of that for sure. Well, Doug, I uh, appreciate you joining us again. This was fun. Uh, I hope we'll be able to do this at regular intervals and check in and just uh, figure out what, what the heck just happened and uh, what we think is going to happen and what's happening in the world and just have a nice chat if you're up for it. I would love to. It would be my pleasure. I, um, you know, even spur of the moment, I, I, when I was up in Reno full time, I would do some uh, TV spots and the, um, the anchor on the show said, you know, Doug, we like having you come in and sometimes people cancel on us at the last minute. Can you just come in and talk and spur of the moment? I said, yeah, I can always think of something to talk about. Um, and, and so it was really a lot of fun for me. So, yeah, if things happen and you want to do a quick one of these or we're going to set up something on a regular basis, either way, I'd be, it would be my pleasure. I, I have fun doing these things. Good. Let's do it. It's, it's interesting for me. Uh, it's educational for me. Hopefully it's educational for everybody else. So thanks yeah. again, Doug. You are welcome. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.